to the One in One podcast, where a below average podcaster chats with an above average athlete. I'm your host, Bridget B. In women's college basketball, many, if not all, teams have a male practice squad. A group of male students will attend practices so the girls can go up against stronger, more physical competition to get them ready for the games. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Reed Honeycutt, a former male practice player for the University of Notre Dame's women's basketball team. Reed was a senior captain of the squad in 2018 when Notre Dame won the national championship. Reed, thanks so much for coming on with me today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for the nice introduction. I'm glad to be on. Of course. And Reed, I have to tell you real quick, my mom, she, well, she listens to the podcast. She's not a big sports fan, but she's very supportive and she'll listen. <laughs> when I told her about some of the episodes I had coming up, she asked what a male practice player was. I told her and she was very interested. She's actually looking forward to this episode. I think it's the first <laughs> one she's ever looked forward to. Um, yeah, we're very, uh, us practice players are very happy whenever we have an opportunity to kind of tell our side of the story, I guess. We're going to get into all that being a male practice player entails, but let's back it up for a bit. Reed, you're from St. Charles, Illinois. You come from an athletic family. Your older brother, Ray, played pro baseball for a while. When did your love for the game of basketball start? Yeah, so I guess for me, I was kind of a weird kid in the sense that when I was younger, I used to collect a lot of uh, like basketball cards and baseball cards, and I would always like my free time would like memorize stats and like watch a bunch of games. And even from a young age, I feel like I watched basketball a ton and it was always to me, my favorite sport. So I think probably even starting as young as probably like eight, nine years old, I've always really loved basketball. But as I got into high school, started to get deeper into kind of the IQ part of the game and really diving in deep to watching players and learning as much as I could about the game. Uh, it really became a passion for mine. So for sure, as I got into college, by the time I was practicing with Notre Dame, I'd already been tracking basketball stuff for probably eight or so years. So yeah, it's been a long time going with uh, my love for basketball. Wow. And you attended Burlington Central High School where you played basketball. Did you play any other sports there? Yes, I actually played baseball, which I don't think a lot of people outside of people at Notre Dame probably don't really know because I didn't play inner hall there. But I was actually, I think I was always better at basketball, but I was a better prospect for baseball Hmm. just because of the stuff that I offered for baseball. But yeah, I played baseball and I also played basketball. And I'm actually shocked you know the name of our high school because even people who are kind of from the area don't really know where Burlington is. So shout out Burlington, uh, really great coaches over there. So I can't I have nothing negative to say about Burlington. It was a great experience. And like you said, I did play basketball as well. Uh, played with my brother actually two years. So freshman year, I was practicing up with varsity and then sophomore through senior year, I was playing on varsity. So sophomore year, my parents had the luxury of, going to the games and just getting to see both of us play at the same time, though it was plenty of arguments, but it's a great experience. So yeah, definitely, definitely enjoyed my uh, high school sports experience. Great. And what position did you play in baseball? I was an outfielder. I played center field. I played infield my whole life until sophomore year. Then I moved to outfield and that's where I was uh, until I stopped playing. 
center field is a very important position. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh, stressful sometimes, but it can get boring. We had some really good pitchers out there, so there'd be games where I'd just be out there kind of looking at the cornfields. But, yeah, it's, it's an important position, and as outfielders like to value ourselves as high as possible. So, yes, thank you for acknowledging that. Of course. And how were your teams at Burlington? In basketball or baseball or both? Both. So in basketball, we were, I think my sophomore year, we won 16 games. Junior year, we struggled. We had a really talented team, but had a slow start. I think we won 14. And then senior year, my senior year, we won 18. And that was the most at the time that our coach had won. And then after I left, they took off. They've had a very, very good program. Uh, Coaches still stayed there, and they've had some phenomenal players go through there. And then baseball, to me, baseball was probably one of the best sports that Burlington has because our coach, at least in my opinion, was one of the better coaches in the state. And he did a lot of work in terms of analytics and setting us up for the you know, best position we could be in. And we won my sophomore year. We won our first ever sectional championship. And right now that's the only one our school has. Nice. And my junior year, we also won conference that year. And we won regional. Didn't make it farther than that. And then my senior year, we lost in the regional. But all three years, we won over 20 games. Uh, very consistent program, regardless of the level of talent. Uh, the coach really got a lot out of us. So we were fairly successful in baseball, definitely more so than basketball. So all in all, it sounded like you had a very successful high school career. So how important were academics to you? Uh, to me, they were everything. So if I were to have t- like people come up to me really regardless, even from a young age, my parents had always put an emphasis on academics and the one thing they always told me and my brother was if we were going to go to a school it was uh the best to go to a school where you would be fine going to that school even if you didn't have the sport so if we had like a career-ending injury or something of that nature we would still be comfortable going to that school and to me i felt like i had too much to offer academically to not go to a school that was going to challenge me. And I saw Notre Dame as a school that was going to make me work more than any other school. And there's also that sports element, obviously. Didn't ever think I would get into the women's practice team, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But I never really felt like going to a school where academics wasn't going to be kind of at the forefront of everything I did. And I knew to me, I wasn't ever thinking professional sports was going to be where I was going to go. And I think my brother was the same way. He ended up going to play professional sports, which is weird. But if you asked him, he would have never said as a kid, like, yeah, I'm going to go play professional sports. So for us, it was always about finding, uh, you know, schools, finding areas where we were going to be challenged academically. And I think for me, that's kind of why I ended up where I did. Yeah, I mean, Notre Dame is one of the best academic schools in the country, so I'm assuming that was the most intriguing part of it. 100%, and it was, you know, a lot of the other schools I was looking at, I pretty much was, like, set on staying in the Midwest because I still wanted to be close enough to my family. So most of the schools I looked at were all schools in the Midwest. Most of the schools I ever contacted from were schools in the Midwest. So I was fine with that. That geographics wasn't really an issue. But then it just came down to, all right, what's the top 
not even the top school necessarily, but what's the best fit for me in terms of academics and kind of lifestyle because schools like, I don't know, I don't want to throw any schools under the bus. Schools like U Chicago, for example, I don't feel like a school like that has the type of social life that Notre Dame has and kind of Notre Dame's kind of the best of both worlds to me. Yeah, it's important to have that social factor. And while U Chicago is a very good school, very hard to get into, I could see what you're saying. Right. And growing up in the Midwest, did you see Notre Dame as as your dream school? So not really, actually. So my dad graduated from Notre Dame in like eighty four. I don't hope I don't get that wrong. I don't want to date him too much. <laughs> but so he graduated in eighty four. And I think the assumption is if you're a legacy that your parents are pretty much, or your dad's just going to like force you to go to Notre Dame, grow up as a Notre Dame fan. And I actually grew up, strangely enough, I grew up more as an Ohio State fan than a Notre Dame fan. Now, as soon as I got to Notre Dame, I had to throw that out the window because people were just not having that. <laughs> but as a kid, for some reason, me and my brother were, we have family from Ohio and everything. And I think... We didn't have cable for a while, so when we got when we didn't have cable, Ohio State was always on ABC, and we just always watched. And they had very good football teams, basketball teams, all that. So I was always like a fan of Notre Dame, but it was never a this is definitely where I'm going to go to school. So I think as it came around and as applications came, I knew that was going to be a school I was going to apply to, if for nothing else, just to make my dad say, "Oh, at least you tried." So <laughs> I applied, got in. And then didn't actually decide where I was going for sure until like May of senior year, waiting out for all the like baseball season, all the sports stuff to kind of cool down. And once I decided to go to Notre Dame, it wasn't ever, uh, like I said, I don't feel like it was ever a pressure from my family to go there. I think it was just, it felt right to me. Okay. So you're at Notre Dame now. How long was it before you joined the practice squad? I joined it, I agreed to join it at the end of my freshman year. So I had been, first semester of freshman year, I didn't really play that much pickup at all because I was like, this school thing is about to be a lot of work. I got to make sure I start off on the right foot. So I didn't play a ton of basketball first semester. Second semester, I started playing a lot more. And then the head of the practice team at the time, John, who was actually a grad student for a couple, for a couple years after. So he ended up being there a couple of years when I was there, he was like, you want to join the practice team? Part of it, I think, is because he didn't want to have to guard the point guards anymore, so he didn't want to have to guard, like, Lindsey anymore. (laughs) So I was like, that's fine. That's fine for me. So at end of freshman year, I agreed to do it, and then sophomore year started up, and uh, that's when I got into it. And did you have to try out, or once John saw you, that was it, you were just in? So that's where it gets kind of like dicey because for me, that's how it was. And we had a couple other guys who it was the same thing. We pretty much just had to go to practice and show that we weren't going to hurt anybody and we were fine. And I think throughout the time we were there, there was tryouts that they would have kind of not really like sometimes people would email the coaches and come to practices and they just see how the girls reacted to them and, how the coaches like them, but generally if you got asked to go by someone who was already on the team, like the practice squad, you usually were fine. So it wasn't really a tryout formally. 
Okay. And clearly you were fine. So did John see you playing intramurals? Yeah, I think so. We started to play together a good amount uh, that second semester. So he was a junior when I was a freshman. So we started to play together a good amount uh, at Rolfs, which is now the, they converted that to the women's and men's basketball facility. But yeah, we had played a lot. And then we started to hang out like a little bit more. And he's just like, yeah, you want to join the practice team? Need some more people to play defense. I was like, I'm all for it. I need the exercise. Don't want to put on any more of the freshman 15. So let me just go ahead. I definitely had that freshman 15. (laughs) So Reed, can you explain what a male practice player is and how much work you guys put in day in and day out? Yeah. So basically all we do as a male practice player is if you really think of it, it's pretty much the same thing as like a practice squad for football. So we're just going over scout team stuff, going against the girls. I think part of it is to make sure that they, as you mentioned earlier, they have kind of a physical presence to go against people that are more athletic. So when they get into the games against some of the top women's players, physically, it's not as bad. Now, a lot of times the girls are going to be more skilled than us when they play them. But we had a lot of really talented guys, so I think that made it a lot, uh, a lot better for them. And I think that's where our value kind of added because, number one, especially my senior year when they had all those ACL injuries, when we actually could field a full five guys for the practice team, it allowed them to kind of rest and kind of avoid having to be overworked at practice. And I think that was a big asset. But really, the athleticism, the strength, and kind of just going against different levels of size because we had every practice we'd have at least a couple of kids six three or taller, and that's a post player for uh, the women's game. So I think going against that all the time made it so much easier for them when they got to the games. And I think that's the whole reason why the coaches valued us. Absolutely. And even beforehand, before practice starts, you sit down with a coach, right? And you go. You will you go over some film of the team that they're playing before so you can run the same plays, correct? Right, yeah. It's basically almost as if we were actually going to be playing in the game, like in high school, at least for us, we would watch film and it's very similar. So it'll be different coaches usually, whoever has a scout, different assistants will have scouts for different games. They'll usually have their laptop out and we'll just come over and kind of go through the offense so they run typical plays, uh, occasionally look at the defense if it's a specific type of zone or a weird type of man-to-man or something. But, yeah, they give us the plays, and that's where I think there's a separation in, and I think this is why we try to not have too many trials for the practice team, is because there is a level of basketball IQ that's necessary to get the practices done efficiently, And it's important for the players to be able to pick up on different plays that the teams will run. So for us, we had to be able to on the fly kind of figure out, all right, we need to be here and here. If we switch positions, we need to be in these spots. So yeah, it's a lot of, I wouldn't say it was a lot of film watching. We probably watched, I don't know, maybe two or three times a week, depending on who they were playing. And it wouldn't be long film sessions or anything like that. It'd be very brief before practice, but yeah, we tried to replicate other teams as well as we could. That's an interesting point you just said about basketball IQ, because you're right. You guys could see a a guy playing intramurals who's super athletic, but if he can't 
view that film if he can't then put it together in practice he, he's basically worthless right right that's pretty much exactly what it is because i don't think we had anyone on our team who wasn't at least at the higher level of understanding of the game for the most part and even people who weren't would at least like put in the effort to serve it out to where they could be beneficial and I think that was the benefit of us expanding. I think when I started, we had probably like 10 practice players who were available, but usually it'd be like three or four of us who came. And by the time I was a senior, we had like 15 to like 18 guys who were, could potentially come. And I think that helps a lot because then you kind of get to mix and match more and the coaches get to kind of choose who they want. So I think definitely the IQ was huge. But also availability is a big thing for the practice team. That's like our number one skill is being able to be there. Yeah, that's interesting because your classwork is obviously comes number one. And scheduling, obviously the girls on the team, their schedules are set where they're, they're always at practice. I'm assuming you right. guys don't have that luxury. You probably have to we, miss. Yeah, so that's why I think it was important as we grew to try to have as many guys available and make sure they were aware of practice times because there's only like a select number of us who actually ended up getting early registration times. And a lot of times it's random anyway, just based on, you know, you're supposed to rotate every semester or whatever. So everyone wouldn't always get the early registration time. So it's a lot of kind of balancing who can be there, who cannot. So at least my senior year, whenever we were coming around the registration time, I'd make sure to remind everyone when practice time was, even though they still wouldn't listen half the time, but <laughs> that's just <laughs> what it is. And then some people have to be in certain classes that are only in the afternoons. So we would normally have practice like two or three, and if people have like 245 or 330 classes, I can't, you can't make them skip class for that. So that's why it was so important for us to try to get as many guys as possible. And balancing the scheduling was definitely tough at times, but at the same time, as long as we had five guys, I think the coaches were happy. And that's really all that we cared about is making sure that they had all they needed for practice. And I have to bring this up. You guys don't get paid. You don't get to travel with the team. You don't have any Ooh. athletic scholarships for doing what you do. You essentially just get some gear from the team. So it's a lot of time spent helping the team with little recognition in return. So what you guys right. do is so selfless to me. Yeah, I mean, I always, at least when I talk to people, because that's really how I feel is, to me, it was always about trying to help them win national championship in whatever way possible. And I know that's kind of a, like somewhat impossible goal to think about because obviously only one team wins, but that was kind of the motivation for me behind going to practice and like trying to organize things is knowing that we put our best foot forward as a practice players to help, because obviously we don't get paid and yeah, we'll get like a pair of shoes or occasionally a shirt if they win something, but we don't really get any money for the time that we spend and really, to me, it's about experiences. And as someone, like I've said, I love basketball. So to be able to learn from a coach like Coach McGraw, or Coach Ivy, or CO, or uh, Coach Cunningham, just to be in that environment, I feel like I'm gaining a lot from a basketball standpoint. And to me, that was a lot. For a lot of guys, I think it was very similar, too. They just love the game of basketball, miss the organized aspect. We had a lot of players on our team who, I know Gino Oriama had said, 
that a lot of UConn's practice players could play like D2. But we're like very convinced that we would have destroyed them if we actually played them. <laughs> because we we had some guys on our team who could legitimately have played probably like low division one for sure. So I think for them, it was like getting that experience back from playing highly competitive basketball. That's so funny that you mention it. I forget who, which practice player it was, but uh, he was quoted years before Marina Mabry made the same quote about UConn. I think maybe it was John who said, uh, we're better than them. And then Marina said famously, yeah. <laughs> UConn's a great team, but we're better. It's, it's a fact. And if anyone was going to say that, it should be John because John is probably, I mean, obviously I haven't been, I've only practiced with them for the four years, but he's to me easily the best practice player that Notre Dame's had. And I don't think it's that close. And he also did it for five years, including his grad year. So he, wow. put, if anyone's going to say that, uh, you know, we're better than UConn, it should be him. But we were always very up for playing any other practice teams, but I know we don't have the budget for that. But if UConn ever wanted to get their five together and we could just get up some of our alumni five, I'm pretty sure we would willingly take that challenge. I would be there in a heartbeat. That would be great. We need to get that funded. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We're doing it, Reed. I'm I'm all about it because we thought it would be great if there was like a practice player tournament and we could just go because I know they have a manager tournament for like the college managers. So I was like, if they just had a practice player tournament, that would be the most fun thing ever. Yeah, you're right. I believe Duke and UNC have the manager tournament before the big games. Right. So that'd be great if UConn and Notre Dame is basically what Duke and Carolina are in men's UConn and Notre Dame are to women. Exactly. That's. That's all we that's all we wanted was just one game against them. <laughs> we'll make it happen. Yeah. I can just tell that you guys were serious about your job. You said you wanted them to win a national championship. So it's clear that you put everything into it. You didn't just go to practice and then, all right, I'm done. I'm going to go take a nap or, oh, it's Friday. I'm going to go have some beer. You know, I, I think that's awesome. Right. I mean, granted, those things still did happen, but not until after practice <laughs> well, was over Well, of course, with. it's college. Right? So we, yeah, to me, I can honestly say that I don't feel like I left anything on the table in terms of putting forth my best foot for the practice team and to help the women's team win. And that's really all I think we could ever try to do is, you know, show up to practice and listen to what the coaches have to say and try to make it as difficult on the girls as possible. So, like I said, when they get to these big games, it's kind of second nature that they've been challenged before. Like when we play them in scrimmages and they're getting beat by a ton. And then we see in like the final four, they're getting beat by UConn by like 15. They're losing Mississippi state by like 12 or 13. And to see them come back is really just like, to us, it feels like we had a, position in helping them build up that resiliency, even though a lot of it is clearly the coaches and the off-season training that they've done. No, but you're right. You help them in practice. That's a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's a part. I think it's, the fact that we don't get recognition to me is totally fine because like, like you said, we don't really get paid and we don't have a consistent, like the same five guys all the time. Some years we did, some years we didn't, but uh, definitely just the whole 
idea of a practice player. I think we, our practice team did it uh, about as well as you could. And I really hope that continues with Notre Dame as they move forward. I know they had some coaching changes, but I think the practice team will still be strong. And I think the benefit of it really is very high. And the best part of it, though, we don't get that kind of public recognition is that every practice you got the coaches, you got the players, managers thanking us for coming every day. Even if we had a terrible day of practice, they'll still thank us for coming. And I think that goes a long way for us to kind of validate that, you know, we're kind of valued at least internally. Wow. They thank you after every practice, not just once at the end of the year. It's all the time. I don't remember that many practices where it doesn't end with basically that's how we know we were done with practice because the coaches would basically say, thank you guys. And then the players would say it too. So that's when we knew we could like take our shoes off as fast as possible before they need any more help. (laughs) That's awesome. And being a practice player, that is something that you can put on a resume, right? The funny thing about that is every interview I've had since I had that on my resume, that's been question number one, every single one. I could see because a, a lot of people probably don't know what it is, so they're interested. Right. It's, it's always a great 10 minutes, and I think it's a great way to differentiate yourself as really a candidate for any position is because there's such a small percentage of people who can talk about that. And like you said, no one actually knows what it is. Like, you read that, and you're like, what does that even mean? Like, do you guys, like, play against them for real? Or do you just, like, work on drills? So, yeah, it's definitely a great talking point and something people love to talk about. And you can also market yourself through that. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, time management. You're at this great university at Notre Dame where academics are tough, but you're also spending your time being a practice player, and the right. season is long, so you're doing it for a long time. So you have time management. You have right. hard work. You're working hard, and you're not getting that recognition. So it's you're working right. hard, but you're not expecting much in return. I mean, those are great marketable skills, I think. I totally agree. And I really think that last part you mentioned is huge, at least in most business settings, is because I think a lot of times, especially with people like our age, there's kind of a tendency to – Even if you do work hard, you do expect to get instant recognition or, you know, like a promotion immediately or someone to pat you on the back. But even though it's a small thing, obviously being a practice player, you don't get the recognition despite kind of having to do more than what the average student would have to do in terms of, you know, going to practices, getting up, you know, at like 630 some mornings to go to their workouts. And it's definitely... Definitely something that is a differentiating factor, like you mentioned. Like, there's a lot of ways you could relate that to a lot of things that you do. And also, some people, we've had a couple practice players even get, like, references from the coaches for various positions and jobs. So I think that's another, you know, huge plus. A recognition from Muffin McGraw would go a long way. Yeah, so, like, I think one of our guys, one of my good friends, got a recommendation to be an RA from Neil and... They're all, the coaches are very open as well. Now, if, like, practice players never go to practice, they might not know their names. Like, they probably can't ask for recommendations. <laughs> but for the most part, for the most part uh, they'd be very open to that. And they're all, it's like a lifetime contact, really, which I think is huge. Same thing with a lot of the players, too. It's like whenever they, like whenever they come to town now, I try to go to the games when they're playing against the sky because just want to see them play. 
you know, see them at the games. And I think that's always, you know, a good experience to kind of see them at the professional level now. For sure. And there's a lot of them in the WNBA right now. Yeah, they have five pick, which was astonishing. That was amazing. Like that, yeah, that never really happened. So, yeah, that's been huge. I think we got a couple more coming this weekend. Sparks are supposed to be here tomorrow, and then I think Jackie and the Aces are coming Sunday. Nice. So it should be a couple more games to go watch. Great. So what coach at Notre Dame was in charge of you guys? We were pretty much always contacting, contacting Neil. So she was, uh, when John was doing it, she was always in contact with John. Then when I did it my senior year, I was in contact with her organizing uh, kind of the plans. And even at the beginning of the year, I had like a negotiation meeting with her as like a joke. I was like, well, we need like X, shoe, X amount of shoes, shirts, <laughs> uh, dart times, uh, all that. But yeah, she was always our main contact pretty much the whole time I've been a practice player. So it was always great. And that's really how we got pretty much most of the stuff we did get. And a lot of it was her organizing all that. And people don't really recognize that because obviously it's not a direct, you don't really see that at the end of the day, but yeah, she was huge organizing everything for the practice players. And changing topics slightly, Neil Ivey just took a job as an assistant coach for the Memphis Grizzlies in the NBA. How do you think she's going to do? I think she's going to be a wonderful coach, and I like the fit in Memphis, number one, because she has a really good energy that always fits really well with young people and, like, young players. And I think that's why she was such an excellent recruiter at the college level is because Number one, she's, like, very genuine in everything she says, but she's also – she still has, like, a young energy about her. And I think that's going to help a young team. And number two, I think when you draft a point guard like John Morant, who is so explosive and has such great vision, bringing in someone who has a history of working with top-level point guards like Lindsey Allen, she helped Marina kind of transition over to that position, Kayla McBride going back further, Skyler – she has like a long track record of working with great point guards. So working with Ja, I think is going to fit very well because Neil's going to be the only point guard in that coaching staff and one of the few point guards in that locker room. So they're going to have a relationship that's going to really be able to elevate him and kind of accelerate that growth in Memphis. I'm really excited for her. I always knew she was going to leave sooner rather than later. I honestly thought it was going to be for a women's head coaching job in college. But obviously yeah. the NBA is very cool. Yeah, me too. I was I was shocked when I heard the news that she was going to the NBA just because I hadn't really, you know, expected that at this point. But, I mean, her son, Jaden, is about to be a senior. So I figured once he got to college, you know, If she wanted to go, that would probably be the best time because he was going to Marion, which is a school in South Bend, a pretty good basketball program. But he transferred to Lalamere, which is a historically dominant program, kind of closer to – that's not really closer to South Bend than Marion is, but it's in uh, Indiana, kind of in LaPorte. So once he left to went there, it's a boarding school. So she'll be able to go to Tennessee, and he'll still be able to, you know, be totally fine, won't have to worry about – you know, taking care of himself or anything like that. He'll have a great group around him to help. Jane's going to Purdue in a couple of years. 
Yeah, it's that's huge because I remember when Jaden was in, I'm going to say eighth grade maybe is when, eighth grade or freshman year, he would always come play pickup with us, like all the practice players. Maybe sometimes Neil would be like, hey, can you take Jaden and his friends to go play? We'd have to like break them into the <laughs> facilities so like they could come play pickup with us. But his growth between his sophomore and junior year is one of the most impressive improvements that I've seen. And he just, he's just a workaholic. Like I think he's going to be someone who is going to continue to rise in rankings and continue to be productive, get stronger. He's already a really good athlete, a good shooter. He's really a good all around player. And I think he got invited to team USA as well to work out with them. I think the more experience he gets, the better he's going to be. And I was honestly hurt that he didn't go to Notre Dame, but I, I get kind of wanting to be away from the place you've been your whole life. For sure, and he might want to get out of his mother's shadow, too. Right. Because if he went to Notre Dame, it would just be, oh, it's Neil's son. But, I mean, we haven't had a lot of – I don't think we have any recruits this year for guys basketball, and next year we don't have any yet. So he would have definitely been a guy who could contribute right away. But he's going to do great at Purdue. Matt Painter's a great coach down there, so I think – that's probably even easier for Danielle because it'll be a closer uh, commute for her if she ever wanted to go up to games. That's true. Tennessee and, and uh, Indiana are pretty close. Right. She was rumored to be involved in the Vanderbilt position a couple years ago. Ultimately didn't get it, obviously, and I was pretty surprised when she didn't. You know what I think had been happening is I think there had been a lot of teams who had offered her positions, and I think she was very strategic with saying, I'm not going to go somewhere unless it's like a, where I want to be. And B, I do think the fact that Jaden was still younger, I think that was two years ago with Vanderbilt. So Jaden was still pretty young and she's the job that she has done, like helping Jaden grow into like one of the more well-rounded individuals around great kid, like, all that she's a big part of that and I think she wanted to make sure that he had everything together and he was going to be good to go before she left that's why I thought once he went to college that she would probably then seriously consider but the Vanderbilt thing I felt like she's not going to she wasn't going to relocate Jaden I don't think I don't think she wanted to do that and there was such a good support system yeah yeah that's hard to do um high school in general but then when you're a really good basketball player you have to get on another team yeah that's tough Right. That's where I think there was kind of a hesitation. But, I mean, the fact that she, Vanderbilt was looking at her and now she ended up at Memphis, I mean, maybe that's an area she had looked at. I don't really know if she has family down there or not. I know she's from St. Louis. I don't know if she has family in Tennessee. But, I mean, it's a great young team to work with. And I think they got a lot of assistant coaches, too. I think they have like seven or eight assistant coaches. So it's going to be a lot of learning from each other. But in terms of like qualifications, I think she's probably the most qualified of the assistants that they have, which is crazy impressive because I honestly, there probably needs to be more women coaches in the NBA anyway. And I think she's a great, great one to have. I think she was like ninth, the ninth women coach to be in the NBA. But like I said, she's going to work great for Memphis. Yeah. Do you think Neil Ivey will come back and be the head coach at Notre Dame when uh, when Muffet McGraw retires? So 
I think, first off, I don't actually see Muffet retiring. I think Coach McGraw is, I don't know. I just, just because she is actually, to me, she is the quintessential coach for Notre Dame in general because she kind of displays that, like, toughness, but also that intelligence that kind of every coach you'd want. But, yeah, inevitably at some point she will retire. And I don't know when that's going to be, but, yeah, I think – to me, I thought Neil had a chance to be that next head coach, and I still think she would. And I think if at any point Neil was like, I'm good with this NBA thing, uh, but I want to go back to college and coach, I think Notre Dame would welcome her with open arms. And I think she would be a great head coach to have because she's already been here, won a national championship here as a player and coach. Uh, and, I mean – obviously a great recruiter. She's shown that she's built great ties with coaches throughout the guys and uh, girls coaching community. So, I mean, I would love to see her be head coach, but like I said, I never know when coach McGraw is going to leave and hopefully she can be coached forever, honestly, because it's just a joy to have, see like the impact she has on the players and really the game as a whole. What have you learned from coach McGraw? I mean, I would say the biggest thing is something about the way she carries herself just, like, gives off this uh, energy of, like, fearlessness. And I feel like that's something that anybody can kind of take with them no matter where they go. And I don't feel like there's ever been a situation where, even though she's said many times that she's very nervous, you always feel like you're in good hands when she's a coach, when she's around, when she's talking to people. And there's like a realness about the way that she communicates with everybody. So I would say above anything else, it's how genuine she is and how tough she is. And kind of that feeling of there's really nothing that can stop me, no matter what people do, no matter what circumstances there are. You know, there's never a reason to give up ever. And I think that's why her teams are always so capable of fighting back. And I think this is the way it is with a lot of sports teams is you kind of see the coach's own identity in the teams and that ability to always fight and never give up. I think that's something that she's really taught everyone she's ever interacted with and not just me. Yeah, she's a great role model. One of the best. For sure. I can't wait for her to get her statue. It'll happen. It has to. So who was the hardest Notre Dame player to guard in practice? Uh, I'm going to have to say Enrique to me because I don't say so when I was a sophomore, I primarily guarded like her like the guard I've always guarded the guards obviously so all the four years but by the time Enrique was a junior she had really figured out how to change direction and she's always been incredibly strong obviously and could get to the basket whenever she wanted to but once she really figured out how to like change direction and use hesitation moves her handle got a lot tighter and basically it was at the point where you would just have to like hope that you could guess the right move she was going to do. No, like we would make it tougher than players would in games. But personally, I think she was the most difficult because she would make some type of shots where you're like, well, that's great defense. And she would just like 
shoot a runner from like 10 feet and it would go in like bank in or something. And you'd be like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do with that. Like, <laughs> I'm like, is this, is this bad defense? Am I just getting cooked right now? Or is she just good? And there are shots where if you were just watching like a pickup game and people made one or two, you'd be like, wow, they're making some lucky shots, but she makes difficult shots all the time. And I think now she's starting to show it a lot more with the wings. But to me, she was the most difficult to guard, probably by a good amount because a lot of the guards I guarded, many of them were like pass first more. She was always downhill trying to score all the time and all the plays were set up for her. So that was also tough. Yeah, that'd be hard to guard her. And on the flip side, what practice player did the girls have the most trouble guarding? John, that's an easy one. That's, to me, that was a consensus uh, because he was not only good at, I guess he still is not only good at making shots from like way behind three point line, which would always make them upset because the way I felt guarding Enrique when she'd make like those crazy shots, that's how they would feel guarding John like all the time. So he could make pretty much any shots on the floor and he was strong obviously, but he was similar to Enrique in the sense that they were always trying to get buckets no matter what. So the girls hated that. Like there'd be certain drills where they would need to get like three stops in a row or something. And for some reason it always gets to like two and then we just get the ball to John and then they would be all mad because he would score again and they'd have to start back over. <laughs> Did Muffin McGraw ever get on you guys? Like ever yell at you if you weren't maybe trying hard, weren't playing as hard or not running a play right? Yeah, there was always a, I would say maybe a couple times a month, probably. I don't know. It'd be a, like, it wouldn't be an often thing, but occasionally we would either, it's usually when we would run a play wrong that like we should definitely know how to run. Or if they were going over how to guard screens or like play a certain type of defense and like we just weren't doing it at all, then sometimes, but it would, it would never be chewing us out or anything. It would be more of a just like, come on, guys like we need better than this or something like that. But it was never too bad. Whenever she raised her voice in general, though, regardless of if it was at us or at like the players, everyone in the gym would just be silent. Cause it was honestly one of the scariest things. <laughs> so she never made you run suicides or anything? <laughs> no, that's a question I get a lot is people ask if we have to condition with them. We do not. Uh, when they, Usually we're the ones who get them in trouble, first of all. But then once they have to run, we just go sit down and drink our water. So we're, we're fine oh, with that. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, no suicides for us. That's great. <laughs> Are the practice players on the team pretty good friends off the court? I would say really good friends. And I would honestly say some of the best friends I have at Notre, or got at Notre Dame were practice players. And some of them I had known before I was a practice player, but honestly, similar with any other team, when you're around people that much every day and you're kind of just joking around and another part, as you mentioned earlier, is we have different schedules and everything. So when we would go to practice, a lot of times we'd go out to eat afterwards or stuff like that. So we would always hang out or we would go play pickup afterwards. So the practice players, like, honestly, by the time I was a senior, the practice players had a, pretty much their own brand and it was really strange because there'd be people <laughs> asking like, oh, there's, are those, uh, are you guys on the practice squad? Like it was some mystical creature 
when <laughs> it's just like a normal group of people playing pickup. But yeah, those are some of my best friends for sure. And I think even now the same thing with the guys who are there, even some of the younger guys who I was only with for a year, I still keep in contact with most of them. So yeah, definitely creates a brotherhood for sure. And what about the women's team? Are you friends with them? I keep in contact with some of uh, the ones my age and a year younger. I don't really know that many of like the girls are now, but yeah, like Arike came to play Chicago, got to talk to her at the game, had Brie on uh, the podcast I had a couple months ago, like a month ago or so. Still like send them Snapchats or whatever, check in, see how they're doing. But yeah, we try to keep in contact with them. I think the relationship's very poor practice player. I think John definitely had the most relationships with, uh, you know, the tightest relationships with the players because he was there for five years. So he had like met a lot of them. But mm-hmm. most of us, I don't know. I would say probably like a handful of us still keep in contact with them. But if they saw us, they would always say hi, regardless of who it was. If they remembered people's names, they usually got like the guys who normally came to practice. And then (laughs) there were some who didn't come as much. So they probably struggled with that. But yeah, they're always say what's up if they see us. Obviously, they're all over the country now. So I don't know if they still text people or not. That's cool. And that's really nice that you and the rest of the practice squad have that brotherhood. Oh, yeah, it's it's great to have. And I think, honestly, it's, it's like being on a team, but obviously there's not, you know, we don't really have a coach for us. We kind of just, once we're on the court, we kind of just do what we do. But, yeah, because we also have a club basketball team that we had a couple of years, started a couple of years ago. And that was probably... I would say 90% of the practice players were also on the club team. So like when you talk about spending time and like being friends off the court, we're honestly with each other throughout the week. And then on the weekends, and then when we have club practices, then, and then when we have pickup that we play with them at the same time. So yeah, it's a lot of seeing the same faces and uh, building relationships. Nice. So you were captain of the practice squad during your senior year in 2018. What are some of the responsibilities of as captain? Most of it is coordinating with Neil. So that was the biggest difference. When I was a junior, all I really did was try to like find other guys because I knew John was about to go. So junior going into senior year, I just tried to like find younger guys who would come to practice. And that's the toughest part is figuring out which guys are not only good, but will actually end up coming. But yeah, mostly coordinating with Neil. Uh, and letting the practice guys know when we have stuff. And then if we don't have enough guys, then it kind of looks bad on me because I am kind of the one who's supposed to at least ensure that we have five guys there. So if we have days where like people would say they would come and then they don't come. And then the chain of command would be coach McGraw would say to one of the coaches, where the rest of the practice guys. And then Neil would say to me, where the rest of the practice guys. And then I usually wouldn't have an answer because if they said they were going to be there and weren't, I wouldn't really know what to do. But yeah, that's basically the main thing other than in terms of like recruiting guys, we kind of just, some guys would ask us, but a lot of times it would be just playing pickup. Like the same way John contacted me. That's the same thing I would do with other people pretty much. It sounds like a lot of work though. And I hope you put captain on your resume. I did. Yeah, I did. Because 
Well, it looks better, obviously, that we ended up winning the national championship. But Yeah, what a year to be captain. Right. I think it was just a lucky it was a lucky draw. It was a lot of uh built up kind of taking off what John had built uh kind of the last four or five years and a kind of collection of the group of guys that we had together that year. I think that made that practice team so good. But it was honestly it was the players and it was the coaches who made that happen. But yeah, obviously putting it on the resume is not a bad thing. I don't know if they ever actually look at that. Usually it's just in general asking what the practice team is. That's usually the main talking point. Well, I think you should put captain in, uh, in quotes, national championship year. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. If I just put 2018, they might not put uh, two and two together. Yeah. A lot of people probably don't know that much about sports. They wouldn't know. Right. That's true. <laughs> and can you explain just how crazy of a year that was for the women's team for some people who don't know? Yeah, so the year started off, we, well, even going back to like the very beginning of the year. So we already knew Bree had torn her ACL the Elite Eight. No, I was earlier than that. No, it was, it was second round. It, it was, was pretty round early. Round 32, because we were at home against Purdue, and I remember the play she got hurt. Yeah, me too. Awful. And it was horrible. So we went into the season expecting her to be out at least half of the season. And then my feeling was, I never knew. Like, I didn't ask her if she was going to come back. I was always just like, how you're feeling, all that. But we never knew if she was going to come back or not because, you know, ACLs are tough. But then the big question was if Jess was going to be able to play because she had transferred in and you're supposed to wait the one year but for some reason, the NCAA basically just said, like, you come up with a good enough excuse, you can play. So we were always on hinges. And I remember I was in the training room one game before one of their, like, games against the D3 school, one of the exhibitions. And I remember finding out Jess was going to play. And everybody just, like, went up in an uproar because at that point, our bigs were – we had Coco, who was – I think, yeah, she was a fifth year that year. She's going to be my guest next week, by the way. She's hilarious. You're going I'm to love excited having, to talk to her. Yeah, you're going to love having Coco as a guest. But so she was the only like experienced. I'm trying to. We had Coco and we had Cat. That was our experienced post players. And honestly, other than Michaela, but she was just a freshman at that point. So if we didn't have Jess, the front court was going to be very, very, very thin, and we were probably going to have to play really small. So when we got Jets, that was huge. So going into the year, we've had, obviously, Enrique, Marina, Jackie. Everyone was expecting Jackie to take a big jump, and she did. Cat's always consistent. So we thought we had a pretty good team, like a top-five team probably. We're really sure if we would beat UConn. But then I'm trying to remember the order of the ACL. So it was, I think Michael got hurt for, like, she tore ACL first. Mm-hmm. That was tragic, too, because that was, like, a one-on-one drill they were going against each other at practice, like right before we were, while we were putting on our shoes. And I just hear like a scream. And that's when she tore her ACL. And then Michaela tore her ACL right after she had just had her best game. So that was in like November, I want to say. Yeah, early enough where she got that year retained. Right. So that was big too, because she's, this year she's going to be, he's going to be really good. But, uh, and then Lily got hurt over, winter break. So I think she got hurt in January 
And it was yeah, just like, yeah, and it was just like late enough to where she couldn't apply to get an extra year. So then we're at the point where we have four players out and pretty much seven scholarship players, I want to say. But at that I think point, you're right. And that was, we were stressed out because after the Louisville game, I don't know if you watched it. Well, yeah, yeah, I actually, that's a talking point. So should we get into it? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go sure. ahead. Sure. So as you said, in January of 2018, Notre Dame went into Louisville and got blown out. Coach McGraw yeah. didn't think her players were ready for the game because they had been a little bit too laxed in practice. And they weren't being pushed by the practice players because you guys weren't there. It was winter break for you. You're not expected to stay through the holidays right. um, and before the semester. So, yeah, my question to you was when you guys returned for a second semester, how were those practices? We, well, first off, when we got back, they were all very excited to see us because they were at 10 people. They had to turn Nicole Benz, who was a manager, into a player. And she was, that was disappointing because she was one of our best, uh, we almost got her for correct basketball, and that would have done huge wonders for our team. But she got converted to a player. So they had 10 people, I think, at that point. Maybe 11, 10 or 11. But when we went back to practice, they had been practicing with each other for, like you said, three or four weeks. I think we had a four-week winter break that year. So they were tired. They had just lost to Louisville by, like you said, I think it was 30 or 40 points. It was a terrible blowout. Yes, and I think 30. They were on... To me, that was the turning point. The Tennessee game was really the turning point, but that Louisville game really kind of sent a panic on the team because they we weren't used to losing like that. Like we had lost games in the past, and you know, losing to UConn, we lost by like eight or so after we were beating them most of the game. So that loss is, you know, you get over that. But a blowout loss like Louisville really, really hurt. So when we got back, we just went in with the mindset that we were just going to try to do whatever we could to just like destroy them at practice because (laughs) when it gets to that point, and that's pretty much what the coaches wanted us to do because when it gets to that point and they had been practicing against each other, there's just a big disparity between like the top five and then having to have the walk-ons try to guard like all, all of the starting five every single day. Like it's a, it's it takes a toll, yeah, and it just, it takes a toll on their bodies and even on the starters because then on the other end, now they have to also play defense the whole time because they don't have any subs because there's only ten people. So once we got there, they were able to kind of get back into rhythm, and then Tennessee, I want to say, was the first game when we were back. So that first half of Tennessee was horrible. At that point, we were like, wow. I don't know what the season's looking like, but we were the mindset was always like, well, next year we're getting Bree back, so that's like a super team, which it pretty much was. Mm-hmm. But the first half of Tennessee was, again, basically Louisville all over again. Second half, Arike came out hot. Marina started making shots. And Coach McGraw even said that was the game that pretty much turned the season around. And... Honestly, when they were getting beat, we were like, wow, we really did nothing to help them after Louisville. But (laughs) I think just being able to get that rest, that was the biggest thing for them that season. And then as we got into 
the tournament and we got into the final four, that was just a whole nother level of emotions. I bet. And we're, we're going to talk about that now. So the Tennessee game, as you said, the turning point, I think they lost one more game along the way, but a very close loss to Louisville. It was not a 30 point blowout. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was not nothing like that. So they get to Columbus, Ohio for the final four and you were also there, right? Yeah, we it was me, uh, Connor, another practice player. Uh, John was there. He was on the practice team that year, but he came over. And we had a couple other practice guys who were there as well. So there was like five or six of us. And again, you guys aren't allowed to travel with the team, so you had to get to Columbus on your own dime. So it shows how dedicated and supportive you guys truly are. Honestly, yeah, it was... But it was a no-doubter for some of us because... It's also, you never know when you're going to make the final four, even though it seems like we had been in it like every other year, pretty much, but it was totally worth every cent. And that's got to be like top five experiences of my life in terms of vacations and places to be, because that whole Columbus, weekend, Ohio. Was, not the location. <laughs> no, I know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, Columbus is, is hit or miss. They got some good food, but yeah, but that weekend was phenomenal. That must have been so exciting watching those two games. They won was, basically on back-to-back buzzer beaters, pretty much. It was so exciting is a word I'll use now. At the time, it was Stress. stressful. It was uh, infuriating at times. It was sad. It was exciting. It was eventful. It, it was a lot of things, but those, I don't think I've ever seen a series of games in a row that have been that down to the wire ending on shots like that. Like that was just ridiculous. And to be in the parent section. So that's where we were because we got tickets from the managers. So we were in the section with everybody's parents and families. So that just, that's a different level of emotion when you see parents who were with, or they're watching their kids who they had seen grow up, put all this effort into reaching this point, like reaching this pinnacle of basketball, watching them sway on every single possession, especially late in the game. Like I thought we were emotional, but some of the parents and like the siblings, they were a whole nother mess than us. They win the national championship. You see their hard work day in and day out. You must've been so proud. I've, I don't know if I've been, more proud of a team that I haven't been on before, if that makes sense. Cause like, obviously I wasn't like on that team technically. But you're a big part of it. Right. But to me, that was just a different level of appreciation for all that they had done, especially when you consider the fact that they had the four ACLs. And I think that has to be the underlying thing that made the whole, the whole final four, even more so than Arike's big shots, which were huge is the fact that they were doing all this in really with only 24 hours of rest when you were basically playing six people the the entire time against two just exceptional teams. And throughout that process, there was so many opportunities for them to basically say, well, this isn't the year. The ACLs took too much out of us. We're too tired now. We're hurt. I think everybody in that, game was hurt a little bit like cat the fact that cat played those games i don't even think people understand how bad her ankle was like she the fact that she even finished those games should be enough for an applause because they were going through so many 
different, you know, physical ailments from like being sore to like actually being hurt. And then to still come out of that and win after being down in both those games, it's really, like you said, I couldn't be more proud of a group, to be honest. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Just all their hard work. ESPN, and I forget who wrote the article. Maybe Graham Hayes. I might be misquoting that. Wrote an article after after the UConn game, basically saying that we were looking for the wrong story, that a lot of people thought the story was UConn's redemption, how they lost to Mississippi State the year before. Can they get redemption this year and win it? The true story was... Notre Dame not giving up on every reason to quit the season. Every reason. Great stat is that they had more ACL tears than losses. Four ACL tears, three losses. Yep, that's ridiculous. That's why they're going to get a 30 for 30. It needs to happen. That would be phenomenal. I I need it. I want it it to be a five-parter like the OJ one. (laughs) See, I don't know if we're going to have the resources or storylines for the five-parter. But it'll be a great story because not only do they come back from all that and win, but then last year is a year that, like I said, we thought last year was a lock to win the championship because obviously we had Bree back. All the other starters are going to be back. And then you see how quickly, you know, luck's not always going to be your way. So like Arike had those free throws, missed the one, even though she's one of the best free throw shooters Notre Dame's ever had. And you really get to see both sides of kind of those big moments. But then the greater part about that to me, and I think why they should probably wait a little bit to do the 30 for 30 is because I think all five of the starters are going to end up having very good WNBA careers. And it'll just be a great, great way to kind of round out everything. And now Neil has a Memphis Grizzlies job and coach McGraw is hopefully going to win a couple more. And we're going to see, so much success out of the people on that team, even like Coco, for example, like when you have her on next week, she's not working for uh, Minnesota. Like there's so much success and talent in that group. And I think it's going to be great to see what they do uh, with their careers. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And if we could touch on the fact that you said Arike had the game winner in 2018 she missed a three throw in 2019. It just shows you that's sports, you know? Sometimes the ball goes in and sometimes it doesn't. Right. And people... It's... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, people want to make it seem like, you know, missing a shot late in the game all of a sudden takes away from all that you had done in the past in terms of producing in big moments and all that. And you couldn't help but feel for her when that happened because she had been a big shot maker and continues to be a big shot maker all the time. And like you said, that's exactly what sports is. There's nobody who shoots hundred percent in those situations. And if someone did, they would be getting paid more than anybody else. But it's just a matter of what sports are and the fact that that doesn't define her just as, as much as this might not be a popular opinion, I don't even think those two shots that she made in the final four in 2018 define her because that's just an accumulation of all the work that she had put in before that. Yes. And honestly, in the national championship against Baylor, Notre Dame had the play they wanted. They had the person they wanted. 
to shoot it, and it just didn't go in. The same right. way it happened last year that it went in. It's sports. Sometimes the ball doesn't go in. But you cannot tell me that you didn't want Enrique having the ball. Exactly. Exactly. She's the one. She had been the person you wanted. When you have a player like that, you're going to ride or die with them making or missing the shot, no matter what. For sure. And she's the best player in Notre Dame history. No one's taken the 2018 National Championship away. They won't. And like I said, they won't be able to take away any of the successes that they have after that or anything like that. And obviously they would love to have another championship. And now they have a very young team. And the thing about national championships in general, even getting there is an accomplishment in schools like Notre Dame, UConn, Baylor's been there a lot. They make it seem so easy. But it, honestly, just getting there is such a huge accomplishment. Absolutely. 2019 was a successful year. Right. And those two shots in 2018, they're not going to be the best moment of Arike's life, nor is the shot she missed in 2019 going to be the worst moment of her life. Exactly. So that was a good conversation. I really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you went to the team's hotel after the game in 2018 to celebrate with the rest of the friends and family. There were yep, a lot we of did. people there. But Coach McGraw found you guys pretty quickly and went right up to you. What did she say? She basically just said, thank you for everything you guys have done. You guys helped us get here. And she, she did. She went out of her way to not only stop and, like, give us all hugs, but she went out of her way to have a picture taken with us. And, like I said, things like that, because the whole year we knew – that the coaches had appreciated us and that the players did as well. But in a moment like that, where she had every reason to just be celebrating that moment with like the team and with the coaches and all that, she went out of her way when they were walking, you know, into all the fans to stop and take that picture with us. And that's something we'll never forget. And I still have that. We had that picture actually printed out. Uh, one of the other practice players had it printed out and like gave us all a copy. And that's really a moment we're never going to forget because it's moments like that. Why I say one of the things she kind of displays is how genuine she is in her interactions, because you, if she walked past us, no one would say anything like we wouldn't feel bad about it. It would be totally understandable, but it just shows the type of person she is. Absolutely. And that must have been such a great moment. And she's right. They probably don't win without you guys pushing them in practice, forcing them to get better. And in my opinion, you guys are a big part of that championship. I know that you guys don't get to cut down the nets, but I think there should be a real change. I think you guys should be allowed on the court to get a piece of the net. I mean, I agree because, I, I mean, like, the band gets a piece of the net and... No offense to the band. I love the band. Knew some people in the band, but I don't know. It's not that big of a deal to us. I don't think we actually, honestly, Toiling in Anonymity honestly is a perfect title because I think our level of work behind the scenes, kind of the mysteriousness about it is kind of playing to our brand anyway. So I, I think that actually helps a lot because we're kind of this just like, back office group of people who are just working with the team. You don't really know us unless you're on 
like the women's team or with the women's staff. Like we could go play pickup and you wouldn't necessarily know we practice against a women's team. So maybe it's better for us to just kind of live in disguise. I don't know. Reed, you're being very humble and I appreciate that. I'll be, I'll be a bit tougher. <laughs> NCAA, if the band gets a piece of the net, the practice player should absolutely get a piece. Yeah. Rule change. I, I would agree with that. We, we, we should make a practice player union and just come up with a list of complaints. To be honest. I'll represent you guys. I'll go to law school. I'll fast track. I'm here to I, help. I would love that. I don't know if we have any <laughs> law people in, our, uh, in the practice player alumni group. That's not true. We do. We have one who just right. graduated a year above me who's right now in law school. So that would be perfect. We should get a union started. I'll have to contact him. <laughs> Did you get any memorabilia? We, yeah, we did. Because like I said, when I had that like joking meeting with Neil at the beginning of the year, we kind of talked about like, yeah, if you guys like win the ACC championship and like win the Natty, like, can we get shirts? And she's like, yeah, of course. So we did get shirts. We got, they always invite us to the banquet every year. So we got to go to that. They recognized us nice. with that. And then we also got championship ring. Well, some of us got championship ring. Oh, that's awesome. So that was huge. So right now I have my championship ring set up with that picture with Coach McGraw right above it. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, so that, we, I mean, we got plenty. Honestly, just saying, especially for, like, some of the guys who didn't go as much, just saying they practice against the national champions is really enough. Like, we didn't really need anything other than that. And you fulfilled your goal. You said you wanted, as a practice player, to do as much as you can to help them win the national championship. And they did. Right. And to me, honestly, when I like felt that way, when I started it, I didn't, I thought that was like kind of a cliche, like, yeah, it'd be nice if we won a national championship. But I don't know if that's like something I can actually contribute to because initially I wasn't even sure. I was like, well, I don't know. Cause I'd never played against a girl's team anyway. So I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll be too physical or something. But, uh, you know, very early on, it really seemed like it was an attainable goal because obviously it's a great program. UConn's always in the way, obviously. But, mm -hmm. yeah, to actually win it is, especially my senior year, knowing that's kind of the last, like knowing the last practice I had against them, they ended up winning all the games after that and got a national championship. That's kind of everything I could have asked for, and it was very fulfilling for sure. Yeah, it's very special. Yeah. So as if you didn't have enough going on in college with the tough academics and the basketball team, you also wrote for a sports website, didn't you? I did. Very, uh, it wasn't that, I wasn't that active with it. I think I started that summer after freshman year. So I want to say that was 2015, I'm pretty sure. So like 20, I didn't write for them at all senior year. So 2015, like 2017. So when I, I wrote for Rant Sports, I was an ACC basketball beat writer but we didn't like interview anybody or anything. We just pretty much just wrote opinion pieces. And honestly, the application process for that was very simple. You just sent in a writing sample. They said if it was fine, you could write for them. So I just wrote articles on what I love. So like I said, I had, when I was young, I always looked up plenty of stuff on like players and prospects and things of that nature. So hey, it's already stats guy. Right. So I was already a very, like, I was pretty well-versed in player personnel. And I think that's the one thing above anything else basketball-wise. I'm, like, very confident in my ability to, like, know players because I had been researching players for so many years. 
So writing for them, I basically just wrote the same stuff I would research. So it was, it honestly wasn't that difficult. I was just like writing down what I was thinking or what I was typing down in Excel or something. So it was a good experience. I got to write some pieces that uh, otherwise I think people wouldn't have seen, obviously, to be able to write for anything. Same thing as, it's the same thing as having a podcast really is the thoughts you have are more widely kind of shown to people as opposed to just talking in your inner circle. True. I still think that's cool. You got a lot going on and you still managed to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I always tried to be as well-rounded as I could in terms of like doing a lot of stuff because I don't know. I think that's again, what my parents kind of just forced us to do like me and my brother, because in high school we were in band as well. And like, I didn't really want to be in band. But well, maybe if you kept going with the band, you would have got a piece of the net. But I wouldn't have practiced against the women's team because I would have been too busy. <laughs> so it's a trade-off. True. But yeah, I definitely think I think I had plenty of time to write for Rant Sports because it wasn't demanding. They basically just said try to put out an article every week or so, which was not too much to ask. And I always tried to stay on top of my work. And I think practicing against a women's team forced me, like you said, to really work on time management skills because I would always try to make sure that I would get as ahead as possible on work. And to me, that's always a big thing. And I'm sure you know with college as opposed to high school, in college you can actually get ahead on stuff because they actually tell you what you're going to need to do. As opposed to high school, it could be like, I don't know, max you're going to get a day to try to get ahead. So having all that, the syllabus and all that ahead of time, helped me get way ahead on stuff. That way I had time to practice, time to play pickup, time to help with the club team, time to write, research basketball, time to hang out with friends, and time to go out on the weekends when I needed to. Yeah, you clearly nailed time management, I'll say. I, yeah, I tried. I don't know. I feel like I never really know if I did good with time management, but I do know all my schoolwork was always in on time, so I think that's really all that mattered. Absolutely. Can you explain what bookstore basketball is at Notre Dame? (laughs) Of course. I love bookstore basketball. So bookstore basketball is, I'll give you the whole spiel because I was a manager with it last year. So I'm supposed to, or two years ago, so I'm supposed to have it down pat. So it's the largest five on five outdoor basketball tournament in the world. And basically anyone from Notre Dame, St. Mary's, which is like kind of like the sister school, I guess, but it's an all girl school, Holy Cross. Any ND staff or anyone who like works at those schools, they play in a five-on-five basketball tournament outside, so you get to make whatever team you want as opposed to inner hall. So at Notre Dame, you have to play, instead of intramurals, you have to play with whatever dorm you're in, so that's a little bit different. In bookstore, you can play with whatever people you want to play with. So my junior year, we had a team made up of all practice squad guys so you have to have a team name and we didn't have it. We were team two the whole tournament until the final four. And then I had an interview and they're like, so what's your team name? I was like, we've been team, team two. So I don't really team two is fine. They're like, we need something better than that. I was like, well, we're on the practice squad. So you can just call us the practice squad. So that's what our name was. We ended up being the top ranked team who had won the last couple of years. And then the headline was like practice squad wins the championship. So of course our practice squad Twitter has to say that, winning championships runs in the program. But yeah, bookstore <laughs> basketball is great experience. If you talk to anybody from Notre Dame, 
they're going to know what Bookstore is because pretty much everybody has played in it. I think the top they've had is like 700 teams. I think it's a little bit less now. Oh my God. But it's, it's so – it doesn't matter if you're good at basketball, you play sports. You do Bookstore basketball because it's kind of just a school thing. People come in costumes, like chicken suits, all this other stuff. It's a, it's a whole scene to go to some of those early games. But it gets really intense. A lot of guys, basketball players, will play in it. So that's always good. Holy Cross's like men's team will play in it as well a lot. So it's always a lot of good competition. Wow, sounds like quite the event. Yeah, it is. So you've been out of Notre Dame for a little over a year now. What have you been up to? So I work full-time downtown Chicago at a bank. I do investment support. So my official, official role is as associate investment consultant. So basically... We do a bunch of back office support for wealth management. So wealthy individual clients will send in requests to their portfolio managers who work at our company as well. And then they'll talk to us with the best way to get that information facilitated to the trading team. Or if it's something like moving assets, moving cash, we can only do that. So it's just a bunch of, it's not overly exciting or anything like that, but I do get to see a lot of, uh, kind of the process of trades happening and getting to see a lot of different parts of the bank, which I think is huge just being, cause I was a finance major in college. So I think being exposed to wealth management, which is a really intriguing space for me and building those connections has been very huge. And you're still writing in your spare time this time for hoopchain.com, right? Yeah. So that's, I guess I should have taken that off of when I was, finishing with Rant Sports. So in Rant Sports in like 2017, there was a point where really everyone, all the writers of Rant Sports were like trying to send in articles on our, you know, board or whatever, where we send in the articles and they get reviewed and all that. There was a point where they just stopped taking stuff and everyone was wondering what was going on. And they ended up switching to basically an all video platform. So they didn't take any more writing. But they, like, never told anybody, which is fine because, like, it didn't matter to me that much. So I was like, all right, that's fine. But I was like, but I still have stuff to talk about. So I was like, let me just make my own website. So I made Hoop Chain, which is basically the same thing, but instead of just focusing more on ACC basketball, just a broad website to talk about, uh, you know, college basketball. And a lot of it is NBA prospect analysis. So a lot of it is doing research or kind of, detailing the research that I've done on various college players and how I project them to be once they get to the NBA level. So that's pretty much what Hoop Chain is. Uh, try to write an article every now and then. Not overly active just because I'm involved with work, obviously. Not as much free time as I had in college, which sounds strange based on all I did in college, but work is a different yeah, level. Yeah, having that nine to work. five. Yeah, it's, it's, it's different. <laughs> And Reed, you have your own podcast, which makes it even nicer that you took the time to come onto mine, by the way. Oh, I yeah. love the name of it. Speak <laughs> Up and you. Dribble. Can you please talk about it? Yeah, sure. So similar to Hoop Chain was me kind of trying to really just have a space to collect my thoughts on NBA prospects. Speak Up and Dribble is kind of that on a larger scale, kind of bringing in uh, pop culture, social issues, and really in general, I wanted to focus on athlete empowerment and kind of 
making sure that people didn't just see athletes through the scope of sports and kind of appreciating the kind of breadth of areas that they kind of had knowledge on. So when I made it, I made it to focus on athlete empowerment, focus on talking about kind of obviously basketball. That's the focus. Every show I have, I'm going to talk about basketball, but also when there's any type of topics in the news that I feel are relevant, not just to basketball, but kind of relevant to society as a whole, because a big thing for me is making sure that no matter where I go in life, I think it's always important to reach out to people and really talk about problems that are affecting people on a day-to-day basis. And obviously, from the perspective of athletes, I think a lot of times they're criticized before doing kind of more than just their sport. And that's where the title Speak Up and Dribble came because I think these athletes today, more so than ever, you look at people like LeBron James, uh, like Kobe Bryant, he's done a lot uh, outside of the game. Candace Parker has done a whole lot with outside of the game. And it's kind of the standard now for athletes, not just basketball players, but athletes in general to kind of make their impact felt outside of just the game. And a lot of that is working the community, uh, having business savvy and all that. So I kind of wanted to integrate that all into one podcast and try to have a diverse group of guests who do different things. And I try to, when I have guests on, kind of talk about what they do career-wise, even if it's stuff I don't understand because I kind of like to show these different areas where people can be successful and make a living. I think that's amazing, and I think you should keep going with that. I listened to some of it. I believe I, I listened to some of the Connor episode, who was also on the practice squad. Yep, and, that's one of my uh, good friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your brother Ray was on it. Yep. I'll have to go back and find the Brie episode. Yeah, I don't think the Brie episode got as many hits. I don't know. I don't, the Brie episode, to me, I don't think the Brie episode was as interesting because I don't think we had as many, like, interesting topics to talk about, I guess. We talked a little bit about, like, Coach McGraw and all that, but I, I think the best episodes are the episodes where – there's like either funny topics or there's some really like hard hitting issues to dive deep into. And I, that's really just based on like the news for the week. But yeah, I think the episode with my brother was good just because we are typically arguing all the time, especially on social media. So people were very interested to hear us in a, a setting where we had to be next to each other for like an hour. So I think that was uh, interesting for a lot of people. And then Connor's episode is interesting because he has you know, his dad's a professional golfer, his cousin's on the Grizzlies, and, you know, he's, like, very into becoming an Imagineer for Disney. So he has a whole lot going on as well. So I like to have guests on who can speak to a lot of different things. And it's clear that you have a passion and knowledge for the game of basketball as well as what's going on in the world. It's awesome. I'm definitely going to continue to listen. I really appreciate it. And I think this is, I've looked at some of the guests you've had on. Really love all the Andy Williams basketball guests, by the way. <laughs> There's, uh, have some more coming up. Who else do you have other than Coco coming up? I did talk to Madison Cable. I think she's going to be a guest in a few weeks. That would be a good one, too. Yeah, that's who I have so far. I'm willing to talk to anyone, though. 
Yeah, I think that's always a big thing. And that's also a tough thing for podcasts is figuring out the guests because on one hand you don't want to just like start getting random people, but at the same time it's always good to have people on who like actually have stuff to talk about. So it's always a tough balance. And I think you've done a very good job with that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's hard because I guess I have a little bit of an in with Notre Dame, so I've had a bunch of people on, right. but it's also who gets back to me, you know? Like, I'm trying to get other other players from other teams on, but at the same time, if they're not going to get back to me and another Notre Dame player is willing to come on, absolutely. I think I think the secret with podcasts, which I don't really know, because honestly, when I started mine, I don't know anything about podcasts or recording or any of that stuff. I think the secret in it to getting guests has to be... Basically, what you're doing is you have to find an area where you can connect to people who will then connect you to other people, and then they know other people. And then you – because if you want to contact anybody, you're probably going to need to say, like, I had so-and-so on or I know so-and-so if you don't know them, Mm -hmm. especially if they're, like, famous. Like, I'm not – I'm not, like, someone who would have anything else to do. But if it's, like, (laughs) athletes who are, like, playing or something, and I'm sure they're – that's the crazy thing is their DMs and inboxes are probably full of requests for like marketing stuff and interviews and all this other stuff. So I think it's always great to have uh, any type of reference for, for them to see. So they at least like can be familiar with it, I guess. Absolutely. You're a hundred percent right. I feel like if I have one person on, but then I don't have their friend on, I'm like, Oh no. Because some people, I'm sure you probably have this too, where people just hear you have a podcast they automatically think, like, regardless of what they have to talk about, they should just, like, recommend to be a guest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of my friends who have, like, never played a sport, they're like, right. oh, I'll come on. I was <laughs> like, like, no, like, that's not how it works. <laughs> it's like I appreciate our conversations a lot, but like, <laughs> still needs to be relevant to the subject matter. Reed, I've really enjoyed our discussion. I like to end the show with some fun questions. How does that sound to you? Perfect. Works for me. Who is your favorite professional sports team to root for? Ooh, this is going to be tough. I'm going to have to go with the Chicago Bulls because at this point, I'm so emotionally invested in them becoming relevant again that I have to go with them. But the Chicago White Sox are a very, very close second. But Chicago Bulls are going to have to be my go-to. Nice. Do you, are you a Ryan Archidiakno fan? Ah, I, I think he does exactly what he needs to do, but I don't think he should be the backup point guard if they're going to be like a playoff contender. But I think he's a very good third guard to have. And like I said, he's, I didn't even, wasn't even sure he was going to be an NBA player. So that just speaks to his work ethic because even when he played a lot of minutes last year, like he did exactly what he was supposed to do. So I respect him. But I know he's he's out from uh, where you're from, isn't he? Ah, uh, close-ish. He's from Pennsylvania. I'm in Jersey. But my dad went to Villanova, so he's oh. a big arch guy. Yeah, You can't go to Villanova and not be a big arch guy. <laughs> True. I'm more of a Brunson guy because he's from Stevenson, which is, like, close to here. Oh, yeah. My dad is also a big Brunson fan. Yeah, he's 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 going to be special for the Mavs. I wish we had him, but I'll take Archie Gagno. He's fine. My brother actually used to go to a bunch of the Stevenson games when Brunson was there. My brother yeah. that lives out in Illinois. 
Yeah, we had to play them in Summer League once. That was a lot of fun. Nice. How'd you do? Did you score on him? I had to guard him the full game. And so at the time, our coach is like, he's one of the top players in the state, so let's just do what we can. And I was like, all right, this is going to be brutal. But, it, like, Summer League, it's like 50-50. Either you get a guy who has a lot of coaches there who's, like, D1 who's going to try really hard, or he's going to chill. And that game, he chilled. Cause we were playing, like, a super hot gym. But their second-best mm. player had, like, 30 or something, so we lost. <laughs> So you mentioned the White Sox. You're not a Cubs fan? No, I'm not. My mom is. I'm not. I'm a very big White Sox fan. Uh, 2020 is still the target year for the championship. I don't know if we're going to get it, though. I've been saying that for the last four years, so I think we're going to have to make some moves. Hopefully we get all our pitchers back healthy, but prospects are there. Bright future for the White Sox, I think, even possibly even more so than the Bulls. Okay, I'll take your word for that. Who is your early prediction for the 2020 NBA champion? So I was really buying into the whole Anthony Davis, DeMarcus Cousins front court Uh and DeMarcus Cousins towards ACL. Yeah, so at this point, I'm going to still say the Lakers, and I'm going to say the Lakers because LeBron is still on the team. And he's never had a supporting cast this good. And I think Anthony Davis will be the best second player he's ever had. And Kyle Kuzma is a lot more talented than his shooting percentages and numbers show. So I think they'll be all right for the first couple of weeks or months. But once they get going, LeBron gets into postseason mode. I think if everyone can stay healthy, that's a big if with Anthony Davis. But if they're healthy, I'll take them over the Clippers. The Clippers, to me, are second likely to win. Ooh, Battle of L.A. That's going to be exciting. Yes, I'm glad I don't live in L.A. There's going to be some brutal times there for those fans. <laughs> and what's your favorite movie? Ooh, that's, that's a great question. I, I really like all of the Avengers movies. I'm actually okay. going to go with Infinity War, not Endgame. Nice. Was that the one that just came out? No, Endgame is the last one. Infinity War was the one before that. Oh, okay. I like Infinity War because, to me, I was just not ready for anything that happened in the movie, and I prefer those. Endgame, to me, like, we knew what was going to happen in Endgame events, pretty much. Like, we kind of knew what the Endgame was going to be. But Infinity War left me with a bunch of questions, and I kind of like when movies don't necessarily do exactly what you expect. Even though it was in the comics, it was not something I think the average person would expect, so I'll choose Infinity War. Okay, good choice. Reed, thanks again for coming on. Oh, Where no can problem. the listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at rd underscore uh, honeycut04, so that's H-U-N-N-I-C-U-T-T 04. And you you can also follow me on Instagram or, I mean, that's about it. I don't really, I'm not that active on like Facebook or anything like that. So you can go on Twitter if you would like, uh, hoopchain.com. I also write some articles on there. If you're interested, uh, speak up and dribble podcast. That's also on Twitter, but you can pretty much find all that stuff through my basic Twitter account if you want to. Also, they should follow the ND practice squad Twitter. I think the handle is just ND Practice Squad. 
It is. Andy Practice Squad might be like that's up there with comedic Twitters for college sports. And everyone should go listen to Speak Up and Dribble. It's phenomenal. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Of course. All right, everyone. That's this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Reed Honeycutt. I'll be back next week with another outstanding athlete.